This time, we're taking a look at the dystopian vampire film, Daybreakers. And along the way, we ask, does Ethan Hawke play a convincing vampire hunter? Is Elvis a good nickname? And what would blood coffee actually taste like? Welcome back to humanity. Now you get to die on this edition of Force Fed Sci-Fi. Hey, my fellow vampire friends. Welcome back to another fantastic episode of Force Fed Sci-Fi. I am one of your co-hosts, the vampirific Sean Michael Culp, and along with me is my friend and co-host as well. I am the very human Chris Rupp. <laughs> yes, and yes you are, Chris. You are very human. <laughs> the most human man I know. Well, they, uh, I, I can't speak for your the rest of your friend group. <laughs> that is true. Uh, so, Daybreakers. Daybreakers, Daybreakers. This is another Ethan Hawke film that I snuck onto the list, and somehow it came up. Uh, I'm super excited about this film. I know you probably aren't, right? You know, I was initially excited heading into it because it seemed like um, a good take on the vampire genre. And um, while I'm not as big of an Ethan Hawke fan as you are, I will see <laughs> just about anything he's in. I mean, I haven't been disappointed with any of his movies I've seen. Mm-hmm. It was just, it's Ethan Hawke, so, but at the, <laughs> to, pref, to preface for people uh, listening in, 09 was a pretty crazy time for vampires. Uh, I know Twilight came out during that time. It was like, during the 2000s, there was a resurgence of zombie films, vampire films, conglomerate of horror that took place, so... Daybreakers kind of snuck in there with the hopes of it being a meta, different taste of a style of a vampire film. But we'll definitely get into the reactions of what we think. But first, yeah. let's have a yeah, let's have a synopsis. All right, awesome. So Daybreakers is set ten years after a global pandemic has turned the majority of the world's population into vampires. And as blood supplies are starting to dwindle, there are scientists who are struggling to find a cure or a substitute for blood until hematologist Edward Dalton stumbles across a group of human survivors. And now they must work together to save what remains of humanity. Sounds good, right? On paper. Right. I mean, and, and this film is only about 90 minutes long, so you don't have a lot of room to to make this an overly complex plot. I mean, you have this dystopian world set up you have a man who struggle he's not exactly comfortable in his position in the world he still wants to hold on to what remains of his humanity while everybody else around him is just a little too comfortable with their new normal yeah it is it's super conformity i would say maybe maybe it shows how as humans we're willing to change but i don't know that's kind of uh apples and oranges right now with people because I feel in the real world now we have the generations that are different you know you can see it it's so uh perfect like you would see you know who a boomer is you know who a gen x is a millennial is like so to say that people would be willing to buy into and conform is a little it's you know it's not that believable I would say right I mean we see this group of people who are are willing to accept change and just kind of roll with it better, whether it's better or for worse. And then we see the people who do change, but not in a way that's acceptable to them. And then they, they force those, those individuals out or they capture them and yeah. could do experiments on them. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting commentary on many aspects of our culture, which we'll get into in a little bit. Absolutely. Uh, we can, who directed this film? So it was written and directed by the Spirig Brothers. They're a group of Australian filmmakers who pretty much exclusively work together on their projects. They write and direct pretty much all their films. Their first film was a zombie comedy film titled Undead, which I, to be honest, I can't really find, you know, where to watch this, if anything. I mean, 
I hear zombie comedy, I immediately think of Zombieland. And for me, that's like the be all and end all of zombie action comedies. Yes, you can't really beat Zombieland, but maybe it was ahead of its time. But probably not. If it's so inaccessible, probably not. I think it was made exclusively for the Australian um, theater market, so I think that's why it's a bit difficult to find. But, I mean, who knows? If somebody's got a copy of it, hey, feel free to send it to us and we'll give it a watch. Absolutely. But they these guys did uh, Predestination. Yeah, they would do I that think... after this film. But that, and that also starred Ethan Hawke, which I think was the, the road you were going to go down there. <laughs> well, well, he's done two films with them, but they also did the, uh, they directed Jigsaw and then Winchester. Now, I've seen Winchester. It's a supernatural horror film with, uh, who's that female? Helen Mirren? Yeah, Helen Mirren and, and Jason Clark in it and set in the Winchester Mystery House out in California. Yes, and the film, I will just tell people it's doo-doo stew. Don't, don't watch it. <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> I've never seen Helen Mirren so misused in my entire life. But also, when you cast Jason Clark as your lead man, you know that this film isn't going to gross money. No one, no one wants to go and see Jason Clark. No offense to him. But I mean, that's really not that character. Well, let's not knock on Jason Clark too much. I mean, he's been in some really, really great movies. But then again, he's yeah. also done a lot of clunkers. So it's hit or miss with Jason yes. Clark. That's right. So it's directed by the whatever the brothers are. Yeah, I, I was confused on how to say their name, too, because it's spelled their their last name is spelled S-P-I-E-R-I-G. And initially I read that as like Spyrig. And then I'm like, well, wait a minute. They're Australian. Yeah. It's probably just shortened to like the Spirig brothers. <laughs> probably those Austrians, Australians. With their, <laughs> but you got to say it with an Australian accent. Oh, uh, yeah. They're, they're the, Spy, the Spirig brothers. Yeah. They they go over there and they hunt they hunt the crocodiles and they 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 hang out they try to summon Steve Irwin's ghost yeah. <laughs> well, checking out all those roos, the kangaroos. Australia, we apologize. <laughs> we're sorry. We're just ignorant United Statesians. So as we've mentioned uh, numerous times in this intro here, this film is starring Ethan Hawke as Edward Dalton, and we've previously talked about hawk's early career on our earlier episode on gattaca not too long ago but in and say about the 10 years or so between gattaca and this film he started some really great films he was in training day with denzel washington he was in before sunset lord of war and before the devil knows you're dead so he's he's kind of carved himself an interesting career as this niche um, actor I mean, you don't see him do too many drama films like this. No, very, very seldom. You really don't see Hawk doing giant mainstream films either. He's kind of like the middleman where he does smaller budgets. Like, I don't even think he's been in a Marvel film, right? No, I mean, he would probably crush it, I mean, in the right role. But I don't think he would really go for a Marvel film. But this was a pretty weird stretch for him where he did do genre films. He did daybreakers and i think in a couple of years before this he did um a remake of john carpenter's film assault on precinct 13 yes yes he did and then he did uh sinister i think in 2011 like there was a and then the purge so in the turn of the 2010s ethan hawk dove into the horror films which i don't know if I can't say if he was the first bigger actor to kind of flesh out the genre because I remember I'm and I'm not too big of a horror guy, but I remember in the late 90s to 2000s, horror films are always kind of looked down as you turn your nose down there, a B movie. They just don't have the same gravitas as a regular drama or action film. But when uh, Hawk started in Sinister, it drew a lot of money because people said, wow, this guy, you know, he's a pretty famous actor. He's actually doing this horror film. And then now, like with Winchester, there was Helen Mirren. I see now more horror films in the 2010s have more bigger name stars attached to them. So well, we'll, certainly get, we'll certainly get into the state of horror films a bit later. But no, you're right. I mean, this was a period of time going back probably 15 years where horror was in a bit of a downturn. I mean, I think the biggest horror film at this point 
was Scream from I think like 1995, 1996. And that totally revitalized the the slasher subgenre. But for the most part, horror films were kind of stagnant for a long time. And then Twilight came around and just totally ruined the genre for everybody. And then <laughs> that it. <laughs> And then it came slowly started coming back around with The Walking Dead premiering on television and The Conjuring film started coming out. And so we're seeing a bit of a resurgence in horror films, but nothing to the same level like we saw in the 70s and 80s. Oh, yeah. We're almost every other film was a horror film. <laughs> were they good, though? That's to be debated. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to yuck someone's yum, but I mean, most most horror films released in the 90s and 2000s were straight straight garbage fire <laughs> that's true so this film also has as elvis one of my favorite actors uh wilhelm defoe yeah i mean he's he's also another actor who's carved out a very good niche for himself i mean he's either oh. in these very small roles or he's in like these very big blockbusters and i think everyone at least in our age bracket became aware of defoe after he was norman osborne in sam raimi's spider-man films yes that was his big for younger people claim to fame and he he pulled off the green goblin so well in that film he's just he his voice the menacing tone uh i remember he terrified me watching and i was 11 but he just he just has that piercing medicine voice that really chilled my bone as the goblin i oh. mean, i don't think anyone has pulled it off better than him since no one of the best scenes i think in any superhero movie for me is when norman osborne is initially realizing that he is the green goblin and is having that conversation with himself in that giant mirror in his home mm -hmm. i love that scene Beautiful. so much Yes, I, I actually, because I'm a nerd, I was listening to uh, him break down his career on GQ, and I guess for that scene, it was always filmed in one take, and so he was talking about how much fun the character was playing, and like it felt almost as if a comedy with his facial expressions and seeing the stark contrast of this villainous character and the weak Norman Osborn that just wanted to be a good father, and... So Willem describes as him having to basically be cognizant of the camera because it, when you watch it, it goes back and forth, back and forth between the two. And I guess as an actor, he had to like jump from back and forth to place because it was all in one take. They didn't edit it. And going back and reviewing the scene, it's wow, it just gives you so much more respect to him as an actor and his craft to be so good, to be able to pull that off without... Knowing, you know, he's just so talented as a person. Yeah, absolutely. So, Willem Dafoe, people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, check out a Willem Dafoe movie if you've got time. Check out check out The Lighthouse. That's a recent one that came out that's really freaking good with Robert Patterson and uh, Pattinson, however the hell you say his name. And that's a solid, solid movie if you like weird indie horror-esque su supernatural films. All right, so rounding out the rest of the cast of Daybreakers, we got uh, another another returning cast member. We have Sam Neill as Charles Bromley, who we talked about. There we go. We talked about him when we discussed Jurassic Park from back in the day. And then we've also got Claudia Carvan as Audrey Bennett. Got Michael Dorman as Frankie Dalton, Ethan Hawke's brother. And then also we've got uh, Jay... Lagaia as Senator Wes Turner, and if you don't know who Jay Lagaia is, he was in the um, he was in two of the Star Wars prequel films as I think uh, Senator Amidala's uh, bodyguard or something. Yeah. Oh. So Star Wars <laughs> fans will recognize him. <laughs> I didn't recognize him. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it's a bunch of Australians and William Defoe. And Ethan Hawke. They're yeah. The only two Americans. The entire cast is Australians. Yeah. Uh, most, yeah. The majority of the cast and crew are Australian. And then Ethan Hawke's just like, hey, I need some money. Because <laughs> for 2009, this was budgeted at 
20 million dollars and i feel like a lot of that budget went to ethan hawk because that's still not a big budget in the year 2009 no it's it's very indie-esque almost i would say it's pretty yeah that nowadays that would be an indie film for sure yeah it's basically the studio saying we give you permission to make this film but we don't have a ton of faith in it yeah well because vampires uh those films were big at this time and with it felt like everyone was making a vampire or a zombie film and a lot of them were bombing because at the beginning in the mid 2000s they were grossing money you know and then like anything except with superhero films i guess it finally just came to a breaking point where the public said we're tired of seeing vampire and zombie films we're done we're done we're burned out so i can understand why they didn't get a huge budget no and like i said i think most of the budget went to ethan hawk and then another significant portion of the budget had to go to creating the special effects for it because they got what a workshop to create the creature and makeup mm-hmm. effects for the film and if you aren't familiar with what a workshop pretty much they have they created the entire look and all the special effects for the lord of the rings film so yeah oh, wow well that's awesome so it well that makes sense why because this film if you choose to watch it people it's very sleek it looks really pretty i mean the environment the tone every aspect from the clothing the cinematography everything is just it's sleek it's a pretty pretty film that definitely sets the tone for this zombie or i beg my pardon this vampire earth (laughs) that hunts humans well that's a good jumping off point to really kind of get into how the the filmmakers sort of created this vampire world and their attention to detail in making this world seem fully formed is incredible they created that the the subwalk for daytime walking that connects every home and building in the world but to me that just seems problematic as it would make breaking and entering much easier and force everyone to invest in a security system so i i find that to be a tad problematic well yeah the security system was so bogus too your back door is open (laughs) entrance through the back door like what is the point of the security system other than to tell you that someone broke into your house right and how does it and how does it not manage to pick up that 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 subsider entered uh ed's apartment there yes a couple times people just get into his apartment where it almost becomes a gimmick where you go okay does this guy just not lock his back door what's going on Obviously not. <laughs> Ethan Hawke is the epitome of trust. He believes <laughs> the good in everyone. But we also see like their version of Starbucks, too. I mean, I, I, I wasn't able to catch the name of their coffee bars, but they use blood in the coffee as a substitute for milk and or cream. And then that total that total butthole who has a meltdown at the at the counter because he didn't get enough blood in his coffee. that's a great scene where uh it represents the pandemonium of people as the blood supply slowly lowers and people lust for it he just he's he becomes that angry starbucks customer that says i want my coffee now give me more coffee i'm paying ten dollars for this latte it's like whoa dude let's just chill out everyone's waiting for their blood coffee I've been on the receiving end of that conversation like so many times when I worked there at the the Green Apron Factory, and it was just <laughs> so. Just seeing that scene just reminded me of all like those horrible conversations I had to have with people, and and I uh, to me I just interpreted that as a not so subtle dig at the whole you know addiction culture that surrounds Starbucks. Yes. Oh, by far it was beautifully. It was so ex- perfectly executed. But we also see the cars that are outfitted to drive in daylight You with the cameras and the window tinting. And even the street signs themselves help us to immerse ourselves in this new world. I mean, with uh, with school night signs and the street signs and light signs and directions. And it is just, I mean, yeah, the, the attention is devoted to that aspect of the production design is nice to watch. Oh yeah, the I would say the first 30 minutes of the film setting up the environment and the tone of 
what the world like how they built it is just incredible to get lost in this world is is really you could pause it and at any scene and just take a gander at all the different elements and really be blown away i felt like they put a lot of work into setting up this believable vampire fied world that i for the reviews that i read most people um glorified that I, did we get where it was? Was it in like New York or California? No, that's never mentioned. And I really feel like that th- this film might have benefited from a few opening title cards describing the nature of the pandemic or a timeline or at least notifying us where we are in the world. Yeah, it's because all we get is a uh, intro from Ethan Hawke where he kind of just says 10 years ago, you know, the vampire it took over the, you either chose to be a van assimilate into being a vampire or you were on the run as a human being hunted for your blood yeah we also get that the film itself opens with that super stylized vin- scene of a vampire child just walking out into the sunrise and emulating herself yeah brilliant brilliant opening it definitely sets the tone for this r-rated gory like take no prisoner style of a film um i I don't think it was too over the top where it got into schlocky territory at the beginning until the end then it becomes a schlock i mean yeah i will agree it doesn't get too schlocky it certainly has its moments and i think the um when ed is initially trying to blood substitute on the vampire subject for the first time and his body explodes everywhere, resulting in failure. I think that's where it got a bit schlocky. Like, mm, that's that's a bit much right out of the gate here. <laughs> the explosion. It's definitely yeah. That's maybe that's the over the top gory nature that they wanted to make it. But I forgot about that. How he just explodes after going back to normal. Right. I mean. <laughs> And I think this is a good question to ask, too. I mean, is this a dystopian film with vampires or is this a vampire film set in a dystopia? I would say I wouldn't say it's either. (laughs) (laughs) I would say it's it feels like more of a political thriller with vampires. If anything, it's like an anti pharma, anti capitalist thriller drama film that coincidentally has vampires as the conduit to push the plot and propaganda yeah i think you know i have been i don't know about you but i myself have been entertained by some other vampire films in the past i think like what we do in the shadows is a really good one or john carpenter's vampires i think is an underrated vampire film but i think this one tries super hard to establish its own lore and it kind of disregards the tropes we normally associate with the genre. And I think the thing that works so well with vampire films is that they have a wealth of of lore and background information to draw from. I mean, it's the reason we still are fascinated with Bram Stoker's original Dracula story is that it established the lore and this this genre itself and I think it's important for films, even modern films, to go back and acknowledge that history and that mythology. Oh, yeah. In the early 1900s, vampire films and like Frankenstein was part of the inception to movies. And they're just they were great films that had great characters, romance, drama, terror. They really weren't what they become, I think, today as like a trope fest. No, and and there's a reason why we celebrate Bela Lugosi and his portrayal of Dracula in the original Universal film is because it set the standard of the genre and the films for decades to come. I mean, we still reference Bela Lugosi in in so many other portrayals in film and in television. Mm-hmm. He was he's so charismatic. I mean, have you ever seen Ed Wood? Uh, that I have not. That I have not seen. So Ed, Ed Wood is a Tim Burton film with Johnny Depp, and it's about the worst director ever in history, but he casts, and this is real, at the end of Bela Lugosi's career, 
Um, he did terrible, terrible B or even C movies by this guy named Ed Wood. And that's kind of like how his career fettered off. But in the movie, it's kind of like a biopic almost of Ed Wood, the actor that played Bella Lugosi. It was kind of a resurgence for who Bella was as a person in the 90s. And he also, the guy that won the uh, Oscar for his portrayal, ended up winning an Oscar and like his career ended up taking off. It was nice to see the old vampire and how he talked and ah, 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 you know it reminded me of uh the sesame street right because wasn't there the vampire guy the count you know that counts one bet two bet i forget that guy's name yeah it was just the count the count the count could even be taken as a reference from bella lugosi i mean what what there, we have cereal with vampires out there twilight i mean Bella Lugosi's Dracula is so iconic. I would say him and Christopher Lee are probably the two that come to mind when you think of portrayal of like Dracula. Well, yeah, I mean, sure. And, and of course, the genre has evolved. But I mean, to I think it's hard to combine sci-fi elements with the horror genre. I mean, I, I do like setting the film in a sort of dystopia-like but at the same time, we see Ed and his team work really hard to try and find a blood substitute or a cure, but they keep they keep getting pushed down and their efforts hindered by the interests of the big corporation they're working for. Oh yeah, that's where the anti-corporate, anti-capitalist elements of the film kind of take over, where even if they found a cure, like at the end... They could find a good blood substitute or they could just take animals blood and be perfectly fine. They the whole point is they're never going to stop killing humans because uh, Sam O'Neill's character said there will be people will always be willing to spend big, you know, pay an incredible amount of money for the real stuff. So even like the whole point at the beginning of the film you think is for the better good, this guy's doing all this research to save humans, you know, so that they can coexist. And that was never the interest of the big corp, big pharma. Yeah, this is there's just so many parallels to draw between this film and taking on the healthcare system. Or oh, yeah. I I call it healthcare for profit because that's exactly what it is. Totally. I mean, we totally. We see people that are literally being bled dry to enrich the lives of these elite overlords. I mean, right. And, those, and we see the, the group of human survivors that Ed finds, they try to ally themselves with Senator Turner in the hopes that politics will somehow save them, but then they're all killed for their troubles. All backstabbing and dirty dealings just for the lust of blood. Uh, their yeah. pure human blood. And then even when Ed's subordinate that the um, Caruso, even when he is successful in making a blood substitute, he totally wants to get rid of the cure Ed found because the subs the blood substitute would make Caruso wealthy and powerful. Yeah. <laughs> so it ends up just being a mishmash of being put down. They never it, the only thing that matters is money, essentially. Which is why I say this is more like a political thriller drama than anything, like a cautionary tale. Because, well, it's cautionary tale towards capitalism. But it, that's, that's kind of like where we could, if you want to talk about we can talk about how this film struggles with um, its idea. Like, what is the theme? Where is it trying to go with all these genres? Because you have a lot of, the best part of this movie is the realistic elements of the criticisms of capitalism, big pharma, the beautiful landscape, but then it's bogged down by a lot of cliches. Uh, at some point, the gore, sometimes it's just over the top. You'll have like a really deep scene where uh, Sam O'Neill, the corporate guy who's in charge, he brings his daughter back, turns her, but then she ends up becoming the, the streetwalker. And then the next scene, it's like a bunch of like Ethan Hawke lighting himself on fire to become human. You're like, wait, what's going on here? The, like the tone shifts from each scene is just off the wall at some points where you really, it'll be a nice calm scene and then just like an explosion of battle. 
So it's really hard to like get a footing. Yeah, the film is awkwardly paced at times, and I think it and it makes me wonder if there is some type of longer director's cut that's out there where these scenes are either rearranged or there is extended cuts. And I wonder like if there's going to be enough steam in the future for us to potentially see this because at 90 minutes long, there's a lot of subplots in this film that kind of don't get answered by the time the film ends so yeah i I really wonder if there is like a two-hour cut to this film that was my thoughts as well because the biggest criticisms that i had were how so many characters are introduced and thrown away like the next scene even willem defoe's character he's marketed as a big supporting actor in this movie and his screen time really isn't that long he's only in the film maybe for like nine minutes ten minutes and his scenes are always very short you never really get a long dialogue but i think the subplots and the introduction of so many characters just kind of took away because you spend two minutes getting to know these people and then they off them or you never see them again it's like okay so why am I wasting my time in this short film learning about these people that have no um, interaction to the plot? Yeah, and I think I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. I, I mean, to me, this film, I think, is underwritten. It introduces these elements or the beginnings of these subplots and these characters, and but they don't go too hard. I mean, to me, Ethan Hawke is kind of... It's kind of blasé through the film. Like he's just here to collect a paycheck and is isn't really going too far out of his way to actually act. But I actually feel like Willem Dafoe is overacting. And you have this potential for this big bombastic great supporting character, but it's just it's uh like I cringe so hard when Willem Dafoe started singing Elvis. And yeah, it, that was yeah. Like, don't don't <laughs> sing. We get it. We know why you're nicknamed Elvis. You don't have to sing it to us. Well, you uh, you caught my lens flare right there. <laughs> as much as I love William Defoe, I just I I understood. It's like, dude, you're Elvis. I get it. All right, we don't need to sit through a song. Yeah, and I I find a, a, I find it hard to believe that there are Australians who don't know who Elvis Presley was or what he did that made him so famous. That it has to be explained. Especially with the advent of Google and Wikipedia. Exactly. But then there's also Sam Neill. Like, Sam Neill could have been a great villain, but he's written so poorly. Yeah, I mean, that's the trouble with it. The first half, all these characters are really juicy and they're building up to a great, what could be a great climax and payoff. But then it just, it turns into cliché. Oh, I'm this evil corporate overlord that just wants money. Oh, I just want more money. I just want more power. And it's just, you think with Sam O'Neill's character talks about, he has some great dialogue where he he explains why he became a vampire is because he had cancer and he was going to die in six months. So a lot of the people that initially turned into vampires probably did it because it was a cure, you know, to live longer. And now you're not going to die and all that. So the film could have gone such a more different way, you know, where maybe finding a way to coexist, um, finding a cure, maybe more of a medical drama. But it just it cuts it short at the end where it just up. We found a cure. Well, it's this weird where you have to get burned up and then get your body temperature high and then cool off right and along along through watching this film there's these numerous attempts to sort of normalize the behavior of the vampires i mean we see them we see them smoke and we see them drink coffee and yet everything we've seen in regards to vampire films or shows is that they can't eat food they can't do any of this stuff because it's toxic to them yeah <laughs> So they try <laughs> with the blood coffee, but it's utter. I don't know. I think those were really cool stylistic things to flesh out the world, but it just fell short where some of the nuances that they added in the film to make it like an artsy film were lost at just the surface level. They threw it in like at the drawing board. They made the storyboards and said, we have to have these scenes of them smoking, drinking coffee because it looks cool. 
and it helps create it. But that was it. It was just only meant to be more as a spectacle as opposed to more of an impact to the story itself. Yeah. And it's just at the start. I mean, when you analyze the critique on big pharma and healthcare for profit, it's a great movie. And then but it's it's subplotted with the rest of these like there's there's implied romances between Audrey and the senator and Audrey and Ed that don't go that don't go anywhere. And then there's also Ed's brother, Frankie, who. Let's face it, despite him being in the military, quote unquote, all he is is in a, he's in a human hunting group. That's all that is. Because, <laughs> yes. I mean, wars are basically fought over resources, and the only resource worth fighting over is blood. And if if, if the humans have all the blood, well, you're just hunting them down. You're not fu- actually fighting them. No, exactly. That's all they were, is just hunters. Then don't. And that's it. That was. I was thinking of uh, if I lived in this time when I was watching it, I said, wow, so being in the military would just be hunting and essentially capturing humans. That is that even count as the military? God, I, I hope we never turn into that. No. <laughs> you know, in modern times. No, when you're hunting humans, you aren't a military anymore. You're just <laughs> you're just hunting people. That's all that is. <laughs> poacher. You're essentially a poacher. Right. That's or a bounty all that hunter. is. I, I but I I absolutely agree with you where there's just so many subplots that I think pull the film down particularly the second half where they just have so many characters I mean what was it that the black guy that's introduced I forget his name um midway through and then they're on the convoy and then he's killed and it's like he has all this juicy dialogue for the f- prior 5 minutes and then it goes nowhere <laughs> he just ends up dying and i get like it's supposed to show the twist and um the upset you know oh there's a mole and all that they actually aren't or maybe the the superpower of the military but there's just so many better ways to show it i think right without wasting our time and last question i want to ask you before we kind of get into our our last roundup of daybreakers how does living through the current pandemic of COVID-19 change your perception of watching Daybreakers? I really liked, I think the film is more prevalent now. So then back when I initially saw it in 2012, 2015, uh, I would say that is kind of a redeeming element living through COVID-19 because when you see the vampires go crazy as like the resource of blood dwindles, and they become more insane that actually really especially now with like all the looting and rioting and how the past three months people have really been struggling and the whole idea of oh my gosh is anarchy going to take over are people going to lose their minds that resonated with me a lot so those scenes like when the guy attacks the coffee shop and you just see pandemonium ensue during the last portion of the film I think those are those did struck me, but it only because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Whereas maybe, then maybe, in retrospect when we view this film, because of COVID, it may get better reviews. But that's only because of COVID. <laughs> so there is something good from COVID-19. <laughs> Daybreakers may have a little softer review. How about you? You know, and as I mentioned earlier, um, it was weird to see people sort of accept the new normal, just kind of lay down and let the pandemic happen without really nobody was mentioning a big effort to combat it as the the pandemic was initially happening. I mean, like what we're seeing now with you know, the the rush to find a vaccine and possible treatments. I mean, nobody really made any mention of them doing that in this film. And and then once it was over and then everybody was turned into vampires, then there was a big effort to start like, okay, well now this is our new normal. We've all accepted it. We have to make sure we sustain this new normal however we can. And I think now in you know life in the time of covid and things are starting to open back up at this point and you know we're seeing all kinds of restrictions on wearing face masks or 
eating and dining outside or doing to-go orders and things like that. So, and eventually we will get past all of the, all of that. We will, I mean, this isn't the new normal, but we should also be very, I think going forward in the future, I think we will be more cautious as a people in terms of identifying and planning and then, you know, shielding ourselves from a pandemic if possible. Yeah, absolutely. I would. I agree with that. And folks, this is force-fed sci-fi's take on a hopeful future. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Change will come. You will be okay. So, Sean, you mentioned your lens flare earlier was Willem Dafoe's explanation of his nickname. Did you have a red shirt in the film? Uh, I would say... The red shirt would either be the, um, I forget his name, but the black guy that gets killed in the convoy. Yeah, it would have to be him because I was going to say uh, Sam O'Neill's daughter, but I guess you could say that with her death after Frankie turns her was the turning point for Frankie, his arc for why he decided to come back and you know help his brother and all that nonsense. So I would say it has to be the black dude that just, you know, we get five minutes of screen time. He's a badass character. And then, up, oh, he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. How about you? You know, I have to combine my lens flare and my red shirt together. Because to me, the offense is so egregious. And this is somehow written in as a major plot point for the film. And as we mentioned, Sam Neill, um, character, Sam Neill's character of Bromley mentions that human daughter, Allison, that he hasn't seen in 10 years. But then he doesn't really make a big effort to try and find her. And then he becomes aware of this group of human refugees that are bringing in a new group of survivors that happens to include his daughter among them. And me personally, I am not a huge fan of Isabel Lucas as an actress. And I'm just convinced she's little more than a pretty face in the majority of her films. <laughs> But then after she's captured, she's turned into a vampire by Frankie after she has a big old argument with her dad and she tried to kill him. Then she poisons herself to become a subsider by drinking her own blood. And then she's horribly dragged into daylight and killed. And this somehow converts the hardcore Frankie back to Ed's side. And then he tries to eat Elvis when they do join up. By the time the film is over, I forgot that she was killed like this. And then Ed rubs it in Bromley's face, but it's in the middle of Bromley's Bond villain moment when he reveals his grand evil plan from a comfy yeah. chair. <laughs> yeah. To me, this entire plot point should have been rewritten or eliminated entirely, or at the very minimum, a different actress should have been cast that was actually capable of pulling off the, that emotional scene. Yeah, I totally agree. But that's the problem with this film at the end, because you have Sam O'Neill as where you believe he's this compassionate guy, and his daughter was the whole crux for, like, you know, almost his driving force. He wants to find her, and then, nope, she's dead. Oh, whatever. Nope. <laughs> I'm an evil man that just wants money. It's like, what? You set this up for so much of the film just to be, ha-ha, I'm an evil man. Nope, turns out I like drinking even... fear too much to want to actually build a blood substitute. Right, and he didn't even have the balls to kill to to bite her himself. That's where I forgot about that in the film. I was like, oh, he's going to totally bite his daughter because he cares so much. And it's going to be this, oh, I, I care about you so much I want you to join me and save me because I don't want you to die. He said it's Frankie. I was like, what? Why? What? You don't, what? Does it know? Why Frankie? What is Frankie? Does it know? So, yeah, my lens flare is my red shirt and my red shirt is my lens flare because it just has such a big totally. impact on the film because it's so poorly written. <laughs> totally. I, I totally understand and I totally agree. You're, yes. Oh, this movie. I, I almost picked the ending battle because just how insanely over the top it is where they just like all start jumping on top of each other the vampires that get converted all because of frankie i was like this is just this is going on too long oh yeah I, I called that the gore orgy 
Oh, yes, the gore orgy. There is nothing better than that description. It's just, it's too long. Just endless vampire. Basically, folks listening to paint this picture, Frankie's human, sacrifices himself because all these, the military troops are there about to eat Ethan Hawke. And Frankie's like, run. So then all, like, 50 soldiers just jump on him, start sucking his blood, and then one after another, they turn into human, get eaten by other soldiers. <laughs> just like... Okay, we get it. We get it. This is a gore fest. <laughs> so, what do you say we discuss the legacy of Daybreaker, Sean? I'm down. So, in spite of the film's best efforts, the film was actually a moderate success at the box office. It grossed over $51 million against that $20 million budget. So, it's good, but not great numbers. But as we mentioned throughout the episode, I really think people were starting to suffer from vampire slash horror movie fatigue at this point i mean and we were still getting twilight films every year and those were just terrible and the walking dead had not <laughs> premiered yet to save the genre itself so there was just so much fatigue and exasperation at this genre that i think people were just burned out by it at this point <laughs> that's very well said <laughs> So currently holds a 68% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and a 57% on Metacritic. And me personally, I think the Rotten Tomatoes score is a bit generous. Really? <laughs> yeah. I, what, I, what would you give it? I think it could stand to go down another 10 points or so and just put it within line with the Metacritic rating. Because the Metacritic gives right. it a 57. All right. Well, yeah, I would say I agree with more of Metacritic. I would say about 60 because of the beauty of it but it's just yeah the plot holes man <laughs> it's too much so I, I found this in my research and I, I like finding little stuff like this so daybreakers opened in the american box office on january 4th of 2010 and it was fourth in its opening weekend box office take behind uh avatar in first place the the, oh, the first sherlock holmes film with uh robert downey jr and Alvin and the Chipmunks to squeakle. So it <laughs> it couldn't even it couldn't even edge out Alvin and the Chipmunks for third place. <laughs> the squeakle. Oh my. Well, when you children's movies do sometimes take the forefront. Cuz what January? Oh yeah, you know, parents are like I just got to get out of the house. Yeah, and this was the point when Avatar was just totally dominating the box office for like what was it? Like 18, 20 weeks and number 1 God. and just made all the money in the world. Pocahontas in space. Poca freaking Hannes in space. <laughs> yeah, that's all that is. With blue people. Uh, whatever. <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> Uh, so with well, all of that cool. in mind, that, th with all that in mind, Sean, what do you say we rate this film? Let's do it. So on our unique our scale, scale, on our on the Force Fed uh, Sci-Fi podcast of wouldn't watch, would watch, would own, and would host a viewing party, what do you give to 2010's Daybreaker, Sean? Well, like I said, the plot holes are just. It's annoying at the end. The second half is just too much where when watching it, you go, all right, we get it. Or even facepalm, honestly, because that's at sometimes I felt. Um, the beginning setup, like I said, was great. Beautiful environment, a lot of spectacle, really rich. Uh, Ethan Hawke, well, I know you said you felt like he was phoning it in. I can't decide if maybe he was just being subdued for the realism of being a doctor. Because I don't think he really kills anyone until the end. Or I don't even know if he does kill anyone in the film. That might have been William Defoe, But he, I didn't mind his character. I thought the romance was stupid and was unearned. Uh, the buildup to these characters were great first half, but just it ultimately fell due to plot holes and just too much gore that the film, like I said, just didn't couldn't figure out its own identity. Was it going to be a horror, vampire, gore, thriller, or maybe the film just suffered from having too many genres in one? So because of all that, I would definitely put this film as a would watch. Despite the troublesome factors that I've discussed, 
I do enjoy the environment and some of the characters at the beginning, but I would not um, host a viewing party, and no, I would never own this film. <laughs> so that's me. I would watch it. I think it's a good first-time watch, and uh, Alexis loved it. My girlfriend loved it, so there you have it. How about you, Chris? You know, there's some things to like about this film, and we, we've mentioned them before. There is the attention to the ancillary details to build this world and the critique of big pharma and the healthcare for profit system. I really, really enjoyed that. But I don't think Ethan Hawke is doing enough to carry this film, especially for an actor of his stature. And it really doesn't help that he's plopped into a story that's underwritten and rife with mediocrity and... I mean, I, and I, it's hard for me to say this, but yeah, I mean, he's underacting and Willem Dafoe is overacting, which don't really cancel each other out. And the, at times the gore can be a bit excessive and the unexplored plot points like you mentioned. And so for me, at the end of the day, this is not a fun movie to watch. So it is a solid would not watch for me. I would. Bada boom. That. I, I'll put it back on the shelf or back in the streaming service where it belongs and not touch this film again. <laughs> well, there you have it. Uh, so, Daybreakers, folks, there you have it. So now it's time to pick our next film. Yes, that's right, folks. We're going to consult our friendly number generator, Major Samantha. Are you ready, Chris? Well, I am, but this week we're going to give Major Samantha some time off, and for our next episode, Ooh. we're going to bring you listeners our very special review of the new Netflix series Space Force, starring Steve Carell and John Malkovich. <laughs> Sweet! The brand new Netflix series. Yes, that was critically panned. I'm so excited! <laughs> Uh, yes, that'll be what we watch for next time. Please watch and enjoy with us. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. It really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at ForceFed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you find podcasts, go ahead and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, forcefedsci-fi.com, for show notes and links to all of our social media. And for all of us at the ForceFed Sci-Fi team, we'll see you next time. ForceFed Sci-Fi is written and hosted by Sean Culp and Chris Rupp. Website design, associate producer, and editing by Jeremy Kesky. Artwork designed by Mike Berger. Theme music composed and performed by Custom Anthem.